sermon this morning is going to have several uh, quotes from one, probably one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. He said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The shadow of a tree, we know this, is not the tree itself. You can benefit from the shadow. You can sit and read in the shade, right? The shadow of the tree. The shadow is real, but it's not the substance of the tree. It's not the essence of the tree, or as the Bible would say of the shadow, that it's not the true form. The law was not the true form of the things that it foreshadowed. Perhaps if we look at it that way, when we go to the Old Testament, we can see the shadows of the covenants casting forward to something or the shadow of the tabernacle or the shadow of all the sacrifices that are contained in the law. And it's really they all they all point to a reality. And that's how redemptive history moves from creation to new creation. Look at Hebrews eight, chapter five. The writer of Hebrews says they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God is the architect. He gave Moses a blueprint. Verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The beautiful thing we're going to see this morning is that God keeps his promises. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Just two chapters later. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The covenants God made with humanity provide a shadow or you could say a beautiful glimpse of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.17 says this, these are a shadow of the things to come. Now he's talking about these New Testament realities. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. As we move from creation to new creation, um, we discovered last week it is very important to understand who we are looking for. And what we did is we, we unpacked and defined what the title Christ means. And it's the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament word Messiah. When you say Messiah or the Hebrew Mashiach with Christos, the Greek for Christ, you are basically using the same term, two different languages. It is a title that appears in both covenants, the old covenant, which the other word you're used to is the Old Testament, same word, and the New Testament or the new covenant. And you've got the term Christ 
and Messiah letting you know where those promises will be fulfilled. In Luke 7.19 to 22, the imprisoned John the Baptist asked this, Are you the one who is to come? Right? He was leaning on the old promises, the old covenant. Or shall we look for another? John the Baptist understood that the Messiah would be fulfilled in a specific person. Andrew understood the significance of the title. In John 1.41, he says, We have found the Messiah... And then the New Testament sort of puts this in parentheses, which means Christ. Last week, we also discovered where we are to look for him. Both Philip and Jesus combined the who and the where. In John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, Messiah, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's the human identity that now fulfills the Messiah. Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 25, Jesus said to them, listen to this rebuke that he gives to them, because he is now walking with two men. They seem surprised that Jesus didn't really know the events that had transpired in Jerusalem recently. How surprised would they become when they find out the man they're walking next to was the one that died on the cross. So Jesus rightly says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Is that how you read the Bible? You read the Old Testament looking for Jesus. Basically, what Jesus just said is the interpretive key that unlocks the Old Testament is Him. Any understanding of the Bible, including Genesis all the way to Malachi, that does not include Jesus, misses the point. So I would say this, reading the Old Testament responsibly guards us from two common ways of mishandling Scripture. Allegorizing and moralizing. Allegorizing, or some people call this spiritualizing, is reading a meaning into the passage from the outside. We value exegesis, exegetical preaching, exegetical study. That word means to draw out what's there. Asegesis places meaning into it that, that oftentimes is not there. It looks for hidden meanings. It, looks, it, it bypasses the plain meaning of the narrative. It looks for novel, creative, unique things. Let me give you an illustration that, 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 that is a common one. David's confrontation with Goliath focuses on five smooth stones. Okay, that's allegorizing. I went through a scripture memory program when I was a new believer called Five Smooth Stones for scripture memory and meditation. And they provided you five verses for the common temptations. Now, is that a bad thing? Is, is memorizing God's Word a bad thing? Is having five verses for every temptation that could beset you a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. Is that what the narrative of David and Goliath is about? Right? You can, so basically, you can make the stones anything you want them to be. We could make them 
Oh, okay, so it'll, it'll be fed this way. You can defeat the giants in your life by the stones of prayer, scripture memory, church attendance, faith, and of course, giving. Right? Here are your five smooth stones. There is also a book called The Five Smooth Stones of Pastoral Work. Right? It's just a common theme. This is allegorizing a narrative that has a plain, bigger meaning. Right? It could be five smooth stones of nutrition, waking up early, Pilates, sling throwing sessions, and reading a manual for killing giants. The danger with allegorizing and spiritualizing a passage is it can be twisted. Scripture can then be twisted to say anything that you want it to say. You can make you can actually find places where it sounds as though denim is of the devil. You can make scripture say anything, and that's irresponsible. And at worst, it misleads people. God has not hidden truth in the Bible, but he's revealed it in such a way that it is open to all. Another tendency of misreading the Bible is through moralizing. Okay, you've got allegorizing and then you have moralizing. And what moralizing does is it sees the stories of the Old Testament as mere moral tales written to instruct us. So the sermon would sound like be like David. Don't be like Saul. Now, there are there are traits that we should emulate as we follow Christ, that would look like David in his obedience. And there are things that we certainly, character traits, that we would want to veer away from in Saul. But what's, what's the big point of the story of David and Goliath? It's not be like David, because you don't want to be like David in every area of your life, if you've read your Old Testament. Right? So all of a sudden, be like David breaks down. The big story of David and Goliath is that God chose a man after his own heart. And the contrast is not little tiny boy David, which he was probably a young man, and big, gruesome, gnarly giant. It's a contrast between Saul's disobedience and David's obedience. Between David trusting God and Saul not trusting God. And it's, it's all about this specific line, this seed that you start to see in Genesis 3.15 that is working its way throughout redemptive history and it goes through the throne of David. That's the emphasis of the New Testament, the throne of David. And, it is, and, and then it, it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew in his genealogy doesn't go back to Adam, the first man. Luke does because Luke's presenting Jesus as the last Adam the perfect man that we need. But Matthew goes back and he traces him to David and then to Abraham because he is a Jewish king. See, if you, if you miss the plain reading of these stories, you'll end up not knowing what to do with a man named Jephthah. What are you, what are you going to say about Jephthah who he asks, God, if you give me the victory, the first thing that I see when I go home, I'm going to sacrifice to you. And guess who walks out? His daughter. This story is is in your Bible in Judges 11. So one man preaches that Jephthah is a warning against rash vows. Now that's, you can get that. There's a place in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes that says that. Is that what the story is about? While another man preaches that Jephthah is an example of devotion to God even when it involves your children. 
Moralizing also overlooks the plain reading of Scripture and it reduces the message of the Bible to a message of moral principles. And when you do that, you miss Jesus Christ. You miss Him. Not that there, not that there aren't commands and, and things we must obey on a moral level. There certainly are. But that's not why those narrative portions of Scripture are there. It comes as a surprise to some that Jesus never read the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet. The only Bible Jesus had was the Old Testament. Matter of fact, he quotes Genesis. He actually quotes the creation account. He quotes often out of the Psalms. He quotes out of Isaiah. He actually makes reference to Jonah as, as a legitimate true story. He compares his, his death in the grave and his resurrection to that of the, the narrative of Jonah. Jesus never read Romans. He never read Ephesians. He never read Revelation. It was the Old Testament that shaped his life and his ministry. So, so here, here's my point in saying that as we move into an overview of the covenants. If we get hung up by the false notion that the Old Testament is merely a history of Israel which it is, it includes that, or outdated genealogies, or unnecessary instructions about sacrifices, or how to properly set up a wilderness camp, and you never see Jesus Christ in those details, you have missed the point of the story. For example, when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she had been chosen as the mother of Messiah, he went to the Old Testament and he says this in Luke 1.32. He actually quotes 2 Samuel 7. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. An angel going back to the Old Testament to encourage Mary about what is about to happen. The Old Testament ends with this promise, quote, in Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, who's the messenger? The same man that was in prison who was questioning whether you're the one or not. John the Baptist. And the Lord, different than the messenger, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And he did. And there was a wall of partition up. And they were selling things out in the courtyard. And the messenger, listen to this, listen to this description, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jason DeRucci in his book, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, said this, Jesus' saving work is the fulcrum upon which the entire Bible pivots. All 66 books, 39 Old Covenant books, 27 New Covenant books, and they all point to a single person. The word covenant occurs about 300 times in the Old Testament. By the way, I'm not using the term covenant as an element of any particular theology or system such as covenant theology as opposed to dispensational or something other, but rather using a term the Bible has chosen that was fully understood by people in the Bible days. A covenant is simply an agreement between two or more people 
There were stipulations. Sometimes there were conditions. Sometimes it was unconditional. God promised to do something regardless of how human human beings entering into that covenant would behave. And what, 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 what I'd like us to see this morning, and, and I already understand half of our time is gone, we're going we're gonna to do a 30,000-foot flyover of five covenants, and I want you to see how God keeps His promises and how you're actually part of those promises. Again, a co- covenant means a mutually binding agreement between two parties based upon specific duties or guarantees certain outcomes. It is a significant term in Scripture. Testament, like we said, is another word for covenant or for our younger people here, the word promise. And people break their promises. God never breaks His promises. God keeps His promises. The interrelation of the Old Testament covenants can be illustrated, if you would, like an hourglass. I know we don't use these much anymore unless you're you're playing games, right? You turn the little hourglass over. But if you look at the Old Testament covenants, and we'll probably combine the Adamic. It's also called Edenic, right? There were promises made in Eden and then to Adam in Genesis 3 after the fall. And the Abrahamic and the Mosaic, also called the Old Covenant, and the Davidic. If they're on the, on the top of the hourglass, they all come down at that little center point to where Jesus Christ fulfills them and then on the bottom it basically then expands out and we're on the lower part of that hourglass that is called the new covenant revelation will actually show you the new creation and it'll take you beyond sort of bust out of the hourglass into into a place that is called eternity hebrews 722 says this this makes jesus the guarantor of a better covenant so interwoven throughout redemptive history you have all these covenants with different features go back to genesis chapter one actually go to genesis three we're not going to read the covenants this morning the adamic covenant can be thought of in two parts the promise in eden and then the results of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, hinging upon, and we've looked at this, so we won't park here long, hinging upon this human identity of the woman's seed. That someone will come from a human descendant and crush the serpent's head. The Edenic covenant is found in Genesis 1, 26 to 30, and chapter 2, 16 to 17, where it outlines man's responsibility towards God's creation and a specific directive regarding a specific tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is conditional. These things will last as long as this condition is met. And and, and it's a frustrating story in some respects because you have the woman listening to who? The serpent, right? And then you have the man listening to who? The woman. I'm not putting the serpent and the woman in the same category. Don't, don't, don't mishear this. Who were the man and the woman supposed to listen to? To God, their creator. And now there's, there's a creature under their dominion. God had given them dominion over all the creatures of the earth and over every single tree of the garden except the one they could not eat from. And she listens to a created being and he listens to someone who is not God. 
And so the Adamic covenant includes the curses pronounced against mankind for the sin of Adam and Eve, as well as a provision for that sin. This is one of the most beautiful details that that you must not miss. The Bible, Genesis, is not a story of creation. It covers creation from two different angles in Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 2. You could actually have, if God designed it this way, 66 entire books that would explain to you the process or the beauty of creation. He's not given that to you. He's given you two chapters because it's not about that. What it's about is in Genesis 3, and this is where the Christian worldview helps us understand things, what is so broken and messed up in this world, it's called sin. And in Genesis 3, it contaminates everything. Yet in the, in, in, in the, in the very chapter that Adam and Eve choose to live independently from God, you have the promise of a man who would come to do his father's will. Genesis 3, verse 15, promises a wounded victor. So let me, let me ask you, have you benefited from the Adamic covenant? You were touched by it through Adam's sin. Romans 5 makes that very clear. But you have also benefited from the last Adam in his death and his resurrection as he crushed the serpent's head. In fulfillment of the Adamic covenant, Jesus is the Son of Man, the new perfect sinless man, the last Adam, and the image of God. He's all those things. In, we move forward, and, and secondly, we'll look at the Noahic covenant. This was an unconditional covenant between God and Noah specifically, and between God and humanity generally. Remember what, in in part of the Edenic covenant, God said this, in the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely what? You will surely die. The flood is a fascinating story. We often can get into spiraling doubt when we begin only questioning the actions of God and people's actions are connected to their character. But the flood serves as a warning of judgment. God will and can judge sin. But it also serves and gives us the hope of rescue, which we see in Noah and his family. That the flood itself is a reminder that God can and will judge sin is seen in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, where Peter says this, If he did not spare the ancient world, and he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, And he did not spare the angels that rebelled. I mean, Peter goes through this whole list to say that God can and will deal with sin. And yet after the flood. Let me ask you a question. Why why are more church nurseries painted with Noah's Ark when it's an instrument of judgment? And the death of all humanity minus eight people. And there's a reason why I'm not, I'm not, I've, I've seen, I've seen a recent proposal that we repaint our nursery and it needs it. And the theme, one of those themes is Noah's Ark. Why? Because of the hope. Well, the animals, right? Cute. Two by two. I always question where are the, where are the seven by sevens, right? Because it wasn't just two of every kind. 
I mean, it was bad news if you were just one of two, right? But you had the seven of the clean animals, right? Because they, well, I guess that would be bad news too, because then you're going to be eaten probably on the ark, right? And, and they're going to make sure they have more of those in abundance when they come back out. So there should be a line of two animals and then lines of seven animals each. Uh, anyway, the hope that is given in the ark and the story and the hope of rescue. Listen to Genesis 9, verse 13. Because after, after the 40 days, and all of a sudden, that giant boat seems very small on the face of a universal flood. The very thing that, that, that men and women mocked Noah for, this huge, obnoxious structure, becomes a picture of salvation. But it seems very small floating on the face of the earth. Genesis 9.13 says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Sally Lloyd-Jones said that it is like a great warrior who set down his bow because there is now peace. And she said it's no longer pointing down at humanity but up at heaven. Again, we might be getting into allegorizing here, right? That's why I'm quoting Sally Lloyd-Jones. Um, it's interesting that God's wrath, if, if, if his bow is pointed up at heaven, that God's wrath will be appeased. It'll actually be ushered away when his son, his only son, would be pierced for our transgressions. Genesis 9.20 gives us the hope of a new Adam. It's a new, it actually is a, an uncreated world that is now about to be recreated. And it says in verse 20, Genesis 9, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. So you kind of have a repeat of the garden that existed in Genesis 1 and 2. Our hopes are high, but then we realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin and Noah fails like Adam. Also in a garden type environment, and one of his sons, Ham, fails, as did Cain. And even though Noah represents a new start or a new Adam, he too now is, if you read Genesis 9, naked and ashamed, just like Adam was in the garden. Water can never wash away or resolve the issue of sin. Judgment and rescue are both found in Christ. I want to read you a passage in John that is not often read, but it's in John chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. I want, I want you to hear what Jesus says. And it might come as a surprise to you. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? Why would he do that? That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Do you know it is the Son? Because of that text, we believe it is the Son who sits on the great white throne in Revelation 19, from whose face the heaven and the earth fled away. Why? So that you would honor the Son. 
So even the monotheistic religions of Christianity and Judaism and Islam, if you're not honoring the Son, you do not have eternal life. It is not enough to say we worship the same God that Abraham worshipped if you reject the Son. This moves us now, we we, we come out of the, the first half of Genesis and it brings us now to the Abrahamic covenant. God promised many things to Abraham. You can read about that in Genesis 12, 3 and 22, verse 18. And it's the passage that Melody read for us this morning. But one of the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant is that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, you have this blessing and cursing motif going back and forth, and, and God promises to Abraham that through you, through your line of descendants, as a matter of fact, go out, look at the stars, try to count them. That's what it's going to be like with your descendants. But one of them, as you trace the word zira, seed, or as you would have um, genealogies, but, but that seed that, that works itself through Abraham, he's going to come through you. And you're going to be the father of many nations, but there's one particular nation that I'm going to call my people, or I'm going to call my son. And that's Israel. And that son, then his only son, comes through that one chosen nation. The physical line referencing Messiah. It's interesting, when Zacharias praised God after the birth of his son John, whom we know as John the Baptist, he saw in Christ's coming a link between Christ and God's covenant with Abraham. Let me read to you Luke chapter 1, verse 72. To show the mercy, I love that word. You know, mercy is different than grace. Somebody has explained it this way. Mercy is God not giving to you what you deserve. Can you imagine if just in the last seven days, God gave to us what we deserved? And he didn't. That's called mercy. Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. Because we could never deserve eternal life or deserve to have our sins be forgiven. And in His grace and mercy, we realize these things. Zechariah says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, the patriarchs, and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. So he sees in this specific person, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Matthew includes him in his genealogy. And as such, he is the agent of universal blessing. We move into Exodus and we run into the Mosaic Covenant, probably the most popular of all the covenants. It's called the Old Covenant. It is a conditional covenant based upon about 300 positive laws and 300 negative laws. Part of the Mosaic Covenant included the Ten Commandments. That was basically just an overview of the 600 that are contained in the law. Blessing and cursing hinged upon your obedience or disobedience to the law. Deuteronomy 11.26-28 says this, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Do you know Jesus? We talk about Jesus' obedience. 
Jesus obeyed perfectly. Part of what you get in Christ's righteousness, righteousness means meeting your obligations, is you get His perfect obedience as a son. Jesus Christ, He said this in Matthew 5.17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Romans 5.19 says this, For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. Basically, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's the purpose of the law. 600 commands to show to you that you are not righteous enough to please God. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, here's this other word, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through, guess who? Listen for the title, Jesus Christ our Lord. Hebrews 10, 5-10 says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Messiah, once for all. Right? The, 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 the cyclical part of those offerings, there was obedience and then there was sin and there was blood sacrifice and other offerings. And it never broke until the high priest stepped in and offered not the sacrifices of the law, but he offered the sacrifice of himself. The Davidic covenant is found in 2 Samuel 7. Let me read to you one part. Verse 16 says, Your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, when Zechariah praised God for the birth of his son John, he saw a link between Christ and David's throne. In Luke 1, verse 69, he says this, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Davidic throne. The angel Gabriel told Mary this, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him, listen to this, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel Gabriel quoting Second Samuel. If you go back to, to even recent, a recent celebration, the Magi asked in Matthew 2, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And in Matthew 21, 9-10, it says, The crowds that went before Him and that followed Him were shouting, Hosanna to, they're saying this to Jesus, to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? He is the descendant of David's throne. Lastly, the final covenant, the best of all the covenants. The New Covenant. 
And I'm not talking about the New Testament, but it's called the New Covenant for a reason. The New Covenant is a covenant made first with the nation of Israel and then ultimately with all humanity. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. I want you to see the wording of the New Covenant. It is the New Covenant promised in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. There is great hope in this. And then Jesus Christ inaugurates that new covenant and establishes it with his blood. Behold, verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Right. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Oh, so the Mosaic covenant. He's even taking us further back when they became a nation out of Egypt and they became a nation on their own. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Here is the hope for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We don't have time to look at this, but Jesus is the prophet that Moses predicted would come after him, who not only is a prophet preaching the word, but is the word himself. In Luke chapter 7, after Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son, it was her only son. Jesus heals him. And in verse 16 of Luke 7, it says this, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Do you know what in part what we celebrate when we put the bread into our mouth during communion and we lift the cup? Jesus said in Luke 22:20, "This cup that is poured out for you," meaning his blood, "is the new covenant in my blood, the new covenant." 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 8.5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The covenant key Christ mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Well, how is that realized? A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The writer of Hebrews describes the covenant this way, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So Tim Chester says this, the Bible is the story of how God fulfills His promise to Abraham. The Old Testament is the story of how God partially fulfills the promise in the life of Israel. But each partial fulfillment points to its ultimate fulfillment through Jesus. And along the way, the promise gets bigger and bigger because God's ultimate purposes are for a new humanity and a new creation. The promise is fulfilled through Jesus and in the new creation. C.S. Lewis, in a sermon called The Weight of Glory, said this, 
If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. I just came across this quote again this morning. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. God keeps His promises. We are living out the new covenant, but we haven't received the full inheritance yet. It's been realized in Christ. It will be fully realized in the new creation. Let me close with one last C.S. Lewis quote that he wrote at the, at, the, at the conclusion of his Chronicles of Narnia. He said this, The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's our hope. I woke up longing for that. Trying to remind myself that this, this isn't the real story. The greatest story is yet to come. And that is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. He had just mentioned in verse 19, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Amen. Let's pray.